How did the G.I. Joe animated series come about? That's a very good question. You may ask how, and I may say none of your business. But since you're asking, I will tell you. If you were to take a trip in a time machine back 30 years and happen to find yourself a child again, and hopefully a child enrolled in a school in North America, it was a Friday. You'd come out of class, get into your mom's car. Perhaps on the radio, they'd be playing Huey Dewey in the News' Power of Love. Maybe it was David Bowie and Mick Jagger singing Dancing in the Street. But the long and short of it is, you'd eventually get home. Maybe, if you were really lucky, you had a handful of G.I. Joes, and you assembled your troops and settled in for the final part of the Pyramid of Darkness, entitled Knotting Cobra's Coils. With the original air date of the 20th of September, 1985, and written by Ron Friedman, with directorial credits going to both John Gibbs and Terry Lennon, you were in for a treat. Or were you? Tonight on G.I. Joburg, we dissect the final part of the Pyramid of Darkness, leaving no coil unturned. My name is Steven. I'm joined by the regular team of expendable mercenaries. And they go by the names... Rob Brickhouse, yeah. Brickhouse? Not bad. It's pretty good. I, I like it. It could grow on me. Paul Sneaker Loksha. Deadly Pencils, man. That doesn't feel right. Deadly Pencils are so cool. <laughs> Alright. Nothing you say seems to touch sides with this guy. My goodness. Deadly Pencils. Shit's gonna get real. I, I see where you're going with this, but he's just not taking the bait. When are you gonna let me be your PR man, Deadly Pencils? Alright, sorry. Yeah. Introduce yourself, Cujo. Special missions, Cujo. My uniform is like yours, except it's more brightly colored. Like an alley viper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and tonight, we close out our five-part series. I would call it a mini-series, but uh, since we average on like 45 minutes to an hour in length, it's more like a maxi-series. Dealing with the Pyramid of Darkness which is the third of the G.I. Joe miniseries and the gateway drug into Sunbow's animated cartoon series. All two of them. Starflies. <laughs> Sorry. Star, Starflies is no gateway drug. That's like your ultimate high <laughs> right there. Hey, look at the pretty butterflies. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, watch Pyramid of Darkness Part 4 and listen to our episode and then... Contact us, send us some love, do something. We left off with a trio, two G.I. Joes, and a newly acquired member, Alpine, Bazooka, and Quick Kick, as they plunged in the Cobra aircraft towards the Earth. Pinned to the fuselage of the aircraft by G-forces, the three men struggle to regain control of the aircraft before it's too late. And that's exactly where knotting the Cobra's coils starts up. What happens, Rob? Well, what happens next is that luckily, while you know two of the team are pressed against the sides of the walls like really big boobs or something, Bazooka just happened to actually be right next to the stick 
and he kind of grips it hard and he pulls it back. And Being he, the effective pilot and soldier that he is. Well, definitely, you know, with his monosyllabic um, sort of replies to anything said to him. He's a man of few words and many skills. But surely he can pull back on the stick and save the day, right? Indeed he does. He pulls it up, somehow he manages to save them. But then, of course, Quickie kind of needs to help him out a little bit more. He's like, <laughs> so hang on, I can't did, do this on my own. Did Bazooka actually successfully manage to right the plane? Well, long enough for Quickie to actually save them. <sighs> so Bazooka, let me get this straight, was sitting at the controls. Yes. While Alpine and Quick Kick and the Cobras, who I'm sure don't want to die, were all pinned and unable to right the plane. Bazooka was actually at the controls. Yes, he was right he there. actually grabbed hold of the stick. Yes. And he still couldn't do it. He couldn't manage it fully. Like, he was oh. able to sort of lessen the G-forces so that QK... Um, <laughs> Uh, manages to actually pull it fully up. And he saves them. <sighs> Took a team effort. That's what G.I. Joe is. It's How a team. bottomless is the pit of that man's ineptitude? It never ends. Bazooka, bazooka, bazooka. Mm. Don't say it anymore or else he'll appear behind you and annoy the shit out of you. Cause <laughs> oh. <laughs> avalanches and raid the pantry for fudgy bars. Say pantry? He he raided somebody's uh, sweatsuit, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> what? It's a no. larder. A pantry? I don't know. Panties. No, Quick Kick had him in his pants, remember? Oh, yeah. Oh, so it is a pantry. Come on now. Pull some fudgy out of my did ass. You, did you guys like the uh, logistics of that scene? Or did you like the way it was framed? or it, it, I don't know. It didn't really hit with me, but I'm not sure why. I found some technical faults in the way the aircraft handled. It seemed like when they yanked back on the stick, they also made it bank or something to that effect. It just, uh, in terms of aviation, like, all you want to do if you're diving headfirst to the ground is just bring the nose up. Just bring it up. Don't pull any other kind of maneuvers. Just avoid the immediate danger. And, like, there was some funky other stuff going on there, but... This was Bazooka's moment, right? To help the team out, and he did. He saved everybody. I think Bazooka doesn't have a single redemption moment in the series. He doesn't ever get it right. Because of Bazooka, we still have Alpine and Quick Kick to play with as toys. Because they're alive because of him. So we have to thank him for that. Yeah, that's why I said, you know, he, he pulled it up enough so that Quick Kick could finish the job. But it was Bazooka who basically made it possible for Quick Kick to do that. So, yeah, thanks, Bazooka, for one good thing. Yeah, thanks a lot, buddy. Well, in terms of continuity of the comic book, Quick Kick was not spared for very long. Sadly. Not sadly. Get out of here. I I like Quick Kick, but Bazooka lives on to see many days, even retirement. Larry Harmer did not like Quick Kick one bit. He has Storm Shadow hand his ass to him very briefly. Just to re-establish who is indeed the master. That's brilliant. And what issue was that? I'll drop it in later. (laughs) (laughs) Let me me distract us from the plot for one more second. Do you guys remember the Marvel comic that had uh, Quick Kick in the foreground and Storm Shout on the background, like doing like a scissor punching motion? That was probably the issue. Do you remember how big Quick Kick's neck was on that cover? (laughs) (laughs) No, his neck was, it was massive. Ah, uh, yes. Issue number 52. 
where Storm Shadow lays the pain on Quick Kick and just reminding us for once and for all that nobody hacks Storm Shadow. Did that comic come out before this cartoon? After. Oh, okay. So I bet, yeah, I bet the comic book guys weren't having it. They probably saw Pyramid of Darkness and they're like, who is this clown job? Larry Homer, the comic writer, most prolific G.I. Joe name, uh, insists that he never watched a single episode of the cartoon. Good man. And it's an important disclaimer to make because you want to make sure that you're not being influenced either way, for better or for worse. Like if the cartoon had a good idea, he can't be seen to crib it. If the cartoon had a horrendous idea, which they often did, uh, he wasn't seen to be attacking them. But anyway, let's continue with uh, a rundown of the events as they happen in this final part of the Pyramid of Darkness. After the aircraft is righted, they come under attack by a Cobra transport helicopter. Yes, that's right. And then they decide they kind of need to bug out of that that aircraft. And Cricket kind of throws out, hey guys, let's take the trouble bubbles out. Because I know all about Cobra's military uh, forces and the names of all of their vehicles. I'm a real Joe, <laughs> and not a stuntman. So the Hollywood stuntman not only flies the big jets, but he flies little trouble bubbles as well, as do Alpine and Bazooka. And they use the trouble bubbles to commandeer the Cobra helicopter, which is a curious, curious sequence of events, simply because they went from a transport aircraft, which most likely has an extremely long range, to the trouble bubbles as a kind of intermediary, to a helicopter which... Are, I mean, helicopters are extremely limited in their range, but that's besides the point. What is very interesting to note is that this Cobra transport helicopter, done up in grey, bears a very strong resemblance to the G.I. Joe Dragonfly, except it has a belly that can accommodate troops. It sort of has the front end of a Huey, so it has a hollowed-out internal space for troops, but if you look at the tail arrangement, it's the same kind of V-tail uh, notor design that the Dragonfly has. It also has twin chin guns, one being a Gatling gun and the other being something which looks a lot more like a flamethrower, I guess, but is uh, sold to us as grenade launcher. And where the Dragonfly's skid-mounted cannon would be, instead this Cobra helicopter mounts it on its tail. But all the design elements are there. What do you guys think about that? You know, I never noticed it until you pointed it out to me, and then I saw it, and it's there if you're looking for it. And then when you see it, you can't unsee it. And then you think, hmm, a Huey and a Dragonfly got on and then they dropped off the child at Cobra's doorstep because that's one fucking ugly helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it does the trick. It gets our three heroes on the way back to G.I. Joe HQ so they can tell the Joes that they found the Cobra Temple. We cut back to the G.I. Joe HQ and find... That after it was reduced to a smoking wreck in the first installment of Permit of Darkness, it is now completely, flawlessly, squeakly clean, rebuilt, and is in fine working order. Looks better <laughs> than it ever did. <laughs> Which is interesting, because, I mean, like, how, how many days have actually passed since this entire thing began? I mean, surely not that many. I'm going to say it's been one evening and one day. <laughs> it's like, why did you waste your time blowing up the vest if, like, they're just going to rebuild it so quickly? I mean, look, if we are to take out travel times, because this cartoon world seems to ignore 
any kind of travel time, we've observed Cobra's attack on the G.I. Joe shuttle launch. And from that attack, we see our two heroes, Shipwreck and Snake Eyes, begin their journey through Enterprise City. That journey takes them up through the underground portion, which is Cobra's sort of nerve center and uh, control cube factory, and then onto the surface, and it's dark. They then have their encounter with Saturn. They are on the run from the Cobra authorities. And then the next time we see them, they're driving out of Enterprise City and it's daylight. So presumably, that's just been one day. Mm. <laughs> you guys are having an issue with the rebuild on the timeline? Well, I can no shit. <laughs> yeah, Paul, drop some knowledge, brother. The only guys that are doing anything in this miniseries, Dusty Mutt Junkyard, up in Space Station Delta, and then you got Snake Eyes and Shipwreck running away from the Gestapo, and you got Quick Kick, Alpine, and Bozooka jumping out of airplanes. So essentially, these are the guys. Oh, sorry, and I almost forgot. You got Roadblock and uh, Airtight taking care of, you know, the twins in, in that cool Chinese city. So, I mean, you got all these Joes doing a whole bunch of stuff. And there's a whole bunch of Joes that we don't see that we saw a, a lot of in previous miniseries. And they got nothing to do. So they decided they're not going to kick back. They're just going to rebuild the HQ. They probably just ordered one from eBay. I mean, the assembly instructions are in the box. They're very easy to follow. Stickers can be tricky, but, you know. <laughs> Well, this kind of also then explains why Cobra Commander didn't stop at just capturing Space Station Delta and destroying the Joe base and being like, okay, cool, now I've got this, I can threaten the world. He kind of had to go one step further with this whole Pyramid of Darkness plan because he knew they could rebuild it in the day. No, exactly. Cobra Commander's wise to, to the Joe's uh, tactics. He knows that simply destroying their base is not enough. He has to uh, use the EMP Pyramid of Darkness. <laughs> Moving on. So back at Giorgio's brand new HQ, they received their first message from Cobra with their demands. And of course, it's it's very confusing because Cobra Commander is like, I am explaining my demands. And then the twins kind of like push him aside and he's like kind of like, oh, I can't see over your shoulders. Oh, what's the plan now? How are we going to win? Yeah, that, this is a window into Cobra Commander's psyche, this scene. When he starts bobbing up and down in the background, that, that's not a man. That's a that's a child snake. Yeah. <laughs> Snakeling. Exactly. <laughs> to teach all those spoiled brat little shits that that's what they look like when they have a, a temper tantrum. Teach them how yeah. to grow up. I yeah. do like Gung-Ho's studly line, though, when the commander comes on the view screen. He's like, why don't you stick your head in a bucket and rust your face off? <laughs> Which is great. But it also makes me think, hmm, it was a major coup when G.I. Joe allowed uh, Zartan's signal to reach their HQ back in the first episode, because that apparently allowed Zartan to get a fix on their location in order to bombard them from space using the G.I. Joe's own satellite. So, you know, why didn't the Joes, like, I don't know, at least change their phone number? Well, they're just yeah. allowing Cobra Commander to, like, call him up willy-nilly. Everybody knows how to get hold of the G.I. Joe HQ. You just hack that big vid screen, no problem. <laughs> it's the only way to do it. And since their security had been compromised, why not rebuild in another location? You're getting hung up on the technicalities. No, I know. It is a there's, cartoon. There's drama ahead. 
Indeed there is. Well, yeah, we, we get some cool kids cartoony moment just right after this uh, <laughs> telephone call. And Snake Eyes and Shipwreck um, threaten base security. Gung-Ho kind of jumps up and he's like, yeah, we're ready for them. And <laughs> the doors open and there are Shipwreck and Snake Eyes on cows. They have ridden cows back to the Jojo base. And... Like, the security guys on the edge of the perimeter of the base just basically let them all the way into the <laughs> command, the sort of the battle bridge, as it were, of the G.I. Joe base. Like, no one said anything. They're like, okay, cool, you guys, ride the cows right down into the front door of this place. And cows, because why not? <laughs> okay, Paul, explain it to us. If this miniseries has taught us anything so far, it's that Snake Eyes and Shipwreck are the sneakiest mofos in the Joeverse. Okay, these guys can sneak into Cobra nerve centers, they can sneak into clubs, they can sneak out of clubs. I mean, these guys are a legitimate sort of infiltration specialists. And I think the sheer fact that they, they get into the base uh, on, on the back of cows just shows how good they actually are. I mean, you know, a ninja and a sailor on the back of a cow sneaking into G.I. Joe HQ, it's not because the security is lax, it's because they're just that good. <laughs> Let me spring into action here. I, t- I completely agree, like, where you have Snake Eyes and Shipwreck doing that dance number in the previous episode, you kind of go full circle. And this is kind of the writer showing us that this is the moment that the comeback starts, when the heroes are, like, literally riding in on cows. Like, you wait... (laughs) The cows come home! You wait for Snake Eyes and Shipwreck to blink through this entire arc. Somebody tells them to wear drag. Okay, let's get it done. They walk right into the base on cows, dude. What what could be more of a boss move? You roll up and you're like, we're here on cows. What are you going to do? Let's get some stuff done. Female cows, no less. Yeah, oh, like, it, Chickens in tow, I think. It's good stuff. <laughs> it's like picture the scene, you know, somebody's like, hey, Shipwreck, you, you're riding a cow. And Shipwreck would probably look at him and be like, and then everybody would just like shut up and go, okay, so what's happening? <laughs> if know? I can't fuck it or milk it, it's dead to me. <laughs> he tells one of the Joes to get him a beverage. He sits yes, down. he sits down like in the, in the throne almost. He like sits down, arms in the armrest, and he's like, give me some of that milk. To Wild yeah, he's Bill, no less. You're a rancher, aren't you, Wild Bill? <laughs> yeah, you know your way around a milk teat. Like I a boss. I mean, Shipwreck is undoubtedly, like, just positioned to be the king of G.I. Joe. At least as far as the cartoon's concerned. So, after Shipwreck takes the throne and starts explaining about his laser disc that he's managed to acquire, detailing the control cube's uh, construction, we switch scenes to space, where on G.I. Joe Space Station Delta, Torch is taunting Zartan and Mutt. Of course, the Dreadnoughts, Torch, Ripper, and Buzzer have taken control of Delta, wrested control of the Fatal Fluffies from Zartan by depriving him of his silent doggy whistle. And so they're giving the Joes and Zartan a hard time. But of course, at that exact juncture, something happens that should have perhaps happened a long, long time ago up in space, Mutt instructs his dog to fetch the whistle from Torch's neck. (laughs) Like, Dusty has come up with, like, several plans before now, and, like, this is the one he should have come up with first. 
I can also explain this. <laughs> Paul has all the answers today. Jeez. I'm loving this. I'm that guy for this episode because, honestly, you know, with everybody being so logical here, I have to throw in my, you know, cartoon well, logical. Look, before before you, you give us the explanation, let me just for yeah, the yeah, sake of the listeners, the, the result of getting Junkyard to snatch up the whistle is that the Joes get their hands on it, they blow this whistle, and all of a sudden, the fatal fluffies, the kind of beasts of burden and, and the enforcers keeping the G.I. Joes slaves on, uh, on their own space station are reduced to cuddly, cute little diminutive Ewoki, but not gremlin-y, but not uh, teddy bears. And all of a sudden the tables are turned and the Joes have control of their space station again. So, okay, Paul, why didn't the Joes think of that sooner? Why didn't they put that plan into action? Well, Dusty's a new guy, right? I mean, he just joined G.I. Joe. I mean, as we we hear on an earlier episode, he's like, you know, uh, he just says, now they're giving me command responsibilities, etc., etc. So he's the new guy. This is not unusual for G.I. Joe to deal with this kind of crisis. They deal with this kind of thing every Saturday for the next, I don't know, 80 Saturdays to come from, from this miniseries. And prior to that, we've had the miniseries where they've also dealt with all kinds of madness. So this is just hazing for Dusty. This is just his initiation. Mutt's a seasoned Joe already. He he knows. He's got all the answers. He's all like, yeah, I would just would have stood on the whistle, but then it would have cut this miniseries down to one whole episode. Let's let Dusty figure it out. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> Dusty fucks up no less than three times. So Oh, I was just going to say he's a little out of his element. you got to give him some latitude. <laughs> uh, my explanation's a bit simpler. Zartan was just never in a position to get the uh, whistle stolen from him. He was kind of in the control center with no Joes around him. And as soon as Torch took over the things, he was kind of brandishing that whistle around like like it was just another bit of bling. Yeah, I'm not sure that they were aware that the whistle was the key to taming those furry creatures. <laughs> furry creatures, are they? But fatal <laughs> fluffies... Oh my bad. Yeah. But <laughs> I like about, this better, to be honest. Some somebody illuminate the scene where we get to see uh, Duke show some personality for the first time in five episodes. What does he get up to? He did the low five with two of his guys to show he's <laughs> one of them. Oh, that's right. Yes, he comes out and he's like, "Oh, good work, guys! Finally!" Like, uh, did you think the form on his his low five was good? Or I think it was pretty it? hip, but it's certainly less uh, complicated than. The sort of handshake he gives Roadblock in the previous miniseries. I mean, that's, uh. that's spectacular. You need to watch that, buddy. Revenge of Cobra, everyone. And then listen to our podcast series. Came out this time last year. <laughs> oh, yeah. Episodes 39 to 43. Very nice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones to hear. And, yeah, Duke deactivates the pyramid, just like that. Boom, end of the series. Well, and thankfully, the deactivation uh, sequence was right outside his cell. Yeah, it's, it's like one button down. Like, there's the open the prison, uh, deactivate the pyramid of darkness. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a bold move. I, I kind of like this as a precedent. Like, if you have a command room, you should have a holding cell within earshot so your enemy can see their destruction. You yeah, can just, just kind of, like... Toys. Yeah. Insult them while you're destroying things. <laughs> it's a precedent that did carry over into the toy line. Mm. You'll oh, notice yeah. the 1983 G.I. Joe Command HQ has a holding cell right next to their computer center. That's good stuff. The mobile command center similarly has a brig right within earshot of the command deck. 
I'm trying to think of other places. I mean, just out of necessity, the 1992 or G.I. Joe HQ, there's a holding cell and it's pretty open plan back there. You're within earshot of any sensitive information. Or maybe it's all just a ruse. You keep your prisoner close at hand so you can feed him misinformation because Cobras always escape, right? That's what G.I. Joe is really about. They're like, how can we make this situation more exciting? And they just find ways to, you know, create storylines. To up the ante because, I mean, That's surely right. G.I. Joe must have pulled out in front by now. They've rebuilt their HQ. Space Station Delta is now in their control again. And the Permit of Darkness has collapsed. The control cubes are still intact. But without the satellite to relay dark energy, the Pyramid of Darkness is no longer in effect. So what cards could Cobra Command possibly still hold? Well, we discover that uh, right now as Cobra Commander berates the twins by pulling on their noses. <laughs> yeah, he, he does that. And he gives uh, Destro and Baroness a call because they're the people who are going to help solve this. And he interrupts them in a very uh, intimate moment. They're they're kind of making out. She had something in her eye. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm Your not sure. Your tongue. I'm not sure why is Destro worried about like Cobra Commander finding out that him and Baroness are a couple. Maybe it's supposed to evoke that moment that like you have two good friends growing up and the other one gets a girlfriend and you're not sure how to do that triangle and all of a sudden your friend walks in on you and a girlfriend making out or something and it's weird so that's probably that moment it's like that episode in the wonder years you know you grow up and you're a successful scottish lord you know with this uh, huge family you know that uh, with millions behind you and your best friend is some kind of weird mutant snake face creature <laughs> And, you know, you guys both happen to like the same exotic Eastern European (laughs) leather-wearing woman. Hold on. (laughs) Good times. What's also really great about the scene is that then Cobra Commander says, Ah, you have to make our low-altitude pyramid so that we can regain control of this thing. (laughs) And he cuts off the the call, and the video switches to a wide angle of of (laughs) Destro and Baroness. And you can just see them almost like, let's get back to Chrissing. <laughs> yeah. Because surely they have a long journey ahead of them. Because, I mean, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, still... they're fully kitted out <laughs> to be traveling under the influence of the Pyramid of Darkness. But, oops, the Pyramid of Darkness has just collapsed. And we're still stuck on this fucking Viking boat. <laughs> stroke faster, goddammit. Stroke, 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 stroke. Destro should have turned around and been like, uh, Cobra Commander, I already have a low altitude pyramid of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> oh, this Romeo. Shut up, bitch. <laughs> no, she says, you can't talk to me like that. We're in a relationship now. I love that. that. That's when it went up a notch. You're like, oh, damn. She's already leveraged him. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. L- later in the episode, yeah. When everything's going, going wrong. Oh, I'm sorry. I jumped to- ahead. No, okay. no, but yeah, later in the episode, he he's like complaining, like, oh, everything's going wrong. And she's like, you can't talk to me like that. <laughs> we cut back to the G.I. Joe, the newly reconstructed G.I. Joe HQ with a newly reconstructed sexy roof. But guess who comes crashing in? None other than the expert pilot Quick Kick and his two mismatched friends, Alpine and Bazooka. Because, of course, 
the pyramid of darkness has started to blink on and off, causing their helicopter to fail. And they come crashing through the roof. Just after, Shipwreck has actually uh, showed everyone at the GRJ HQ the laser disc, which explains that for them to be able to actually stop this pyramid of darkness completely, they have to go to the Cobra base and activate the self-destruct. And they're all wondering, where the hell is this base? And then... Suddenly... Suddenly... Oh! What they need crashes to the roof. Hmm. Convenient. So G.I. Joe mount a massive counterattack. Destro and the Baroness have set up their low-altitude pyramid of darkness. And they seem to be having technical issues with it. I have one logical issue with the low-altitude pyramid of darkness. Because... The original Pyramid of Darkness, to my mind, looks like it is based on line of sight. The control cubes send a beam up to the satellite. That's why they're orientated in a certain way. The satellite then beams that energy back down in a kind of a darkened state, which creates this enveloping pyramid, which covers, I suppose, 70% of the globe. If you remove that satellite from the equation and place the linking up point on the surface of the Earth, all of a sudden the control cubes don't have line of sight on it anymore. I follow you. So do the beams then follow the curvature of the Earth? They would have to realign them, surely. Uh, the beams well. do as they please, my friend. <laughs> but, but wait, guys, guys, wait. Paul has all the answers this episode. So, Paul, why does it still work? It's a fucking cartoon. And that, my friend, is the trump card for this episode. What's the dynamic in this scene when they're on top of the undisclosed peak? Are are Destro and uh, Baroness still in the throes of, you know, is this still the honeymoon phase, or are they arguing already? Well, they're slowly but surely getting towards the arguing phase. Okay. It's it's not working, and he's blaming her for it. He's having performance issues with the machine, is that right? It seems Mm -hmm. to be that, because, I mean, he set this whole thing up very fast. Yeah. Well, he's just been working long hours at the Cobra offices. I mean, he he's, he's bound to not be able to, you know, get things to work every once in a while. Yeah, he, performance issues. He laughs decidedly less in this episode than in the previous installments, that's for sure. He's it's a commentary on relationships. ED is no laughing matter. Hey! <laughs> of course, in the words of the Baroness, don't get cross with me, we are in a relationship. <laughs> Boo. If you're a kid watching that, that's got to be the first twinge of, uh, yeah. Oh, this like, is going to be fun like, later on in life. Uh-huh. I have issues with Baroness. I mean, she'd always been presented as a capable terrorist, but now all of a sudden that she's having a relationship with Destro, she's presented in a rather, quite frankly, chauvinistic light. Uh, she's not taking a very active role in this miniseries at all. Uh, in the previous one, she was leading an attack at that atoll. Uh, I'm sure that says something about the writer's mindset. Well, but what happens well, next? <laughs> <laughs> what happens next is that they they yeah they mount a full-out attack on the Cobra HQ, but Cobra Commander is ready for them as he deploys his Cobra Dragon Cannon. I just have one other thing to pick out. Yeah, yeah. I didn't in the, in the previous... Yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's an animation error or just an oddity. Baroness is presented to us as having almost a chip in her teeth. Did anyone else notice that? When she's haranguing Destro about his performance issues while he's trying to get the low-altitude pyramid of darkness to function, she's got a chipped tooth. 
You think that's a mistake or an, an animation nod uh, to her making out? I'd like metal? to think of it as an Easter egg. You know, I think if you're making out with a metal-faced man, you are, you know, playing fast and loose with your dental. Can they French kiss? <laughs> Why? Well, he's got a metal tongue. He can't move his metal mouth, right? It seems that way, yeah. So he can kind of open his mouth. It's not Dr. Dimesh. It moves. Yeah, it moves. So he can kind of open his mouth. and They can French kiss then. That's some kind of crazy fetishist couple because take the fucking mask off if you want to kiss me. That should have been her line. If yeah. they re-release the G.I. Joe cartoon like today, those two have to be like the most dysfunctional couple ever made. That would be the best way to do them. Where they're constantly arguing but they can't get away from each other. Side debate. Is the mask in the cartoon series removable? Or is it his skin? I cannot answer that because... I honestly don't know. I, I can't think of any moment where Destro does remove his mask or that the show even hints that he removes his mask. or That it's even a mask. That it's even a mask, yeah. So what, he just has a metal head in this series? I'm starting to think that that is exactly how Destro is presented to us. They saw the action figure, they were like, oh, this guy's got a silver head. That's interesting. He has that bolt collar around the neck, though, doesn't he? Which could mean that he's just got a weird growth on his neck. I mean, like, <laughs> sometimes you see his chest and it's done in grey. So it's like he's a metal man. I don't know. Well, ladies do like that. Yeah. So you were telling us about the Cobra Dragon. G.I. Joe is assaulting the Cobra Temple and Cobra Commander has an ace up his sleeve. Yes, he's Cobra Dragon. And he deploys it, and suddenly all the doors are knocked down. It's not really a dragon in so much as it is a fixed weapon on the, the, the temple battlements. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, like a big uh -huh. cobra-looking thing, but they're kind of... Uh, yeah. There's a sonic weapon in all of them. I'm curious to know what the weapons expert of G.I. Joe Berg thinks about that weapon. Uh, something I was uh, chatting to Steve about when we were watching this episode originally is the U.S. Army has a weapon that they've prototyped. Basically, it, it, it's a kind of a drum that emits microwaves. And what that does is, apparently the sensation is very much like you can feel your body kind of, everything just goes like, apparently goes pins and needly. And then eventually you just, you can't move. If you try to walk close to it, it's just, it's unbearable. It's a completely unbearable feeling. And apparently they have tested this. It's supposed to be some kind of weapon designed for ethical combat, you know, so that people don't die. It really exists. And it's quite scary. The cartoon had this idea. And I've said this many times before. We're adults now. We watched these things when we were kids. And some of us grew up to be weapons engineers. And I'm sure that some of these ideas, you know, sparked the imagination. That, you know, that guys came up with things or or felt that they were inspired by things that seen in, in cartoons and turned them into real weapons. And I know when you hear this, it sounds extremely laughable, but there's like a uh, lot of stuff. Burnt, yeah, so we're the Dominator. You know, you have all of this discussion about the harp. Once again, the Cobra Dragon Head. It's very much like that microwave emitter that the U.S. military has. What do you guys think about the naming? The Cobra Dragon? Uh, as far as branding goes, Stupid. do you like it? Yeah, no. I'm not feeling it. It's so far off the mark. It's like, basically, they should have just called it the Cobra Microwave Cannon. That would have just made more <laughs> sense somehow. <laughs> well, knowing G.I. Joe and Cobra's knack for naming things, it's probably an acronym. It's a miss. Yeah. 
So, I mean, the, the fact I, that it spells dragon was just a, a happy coincidence. We like the nice. diametric reconnaissance, antagonizing, neutralizing gun of... Nausea? Negativity. <laughs> Nausea. Oh, you guys pulled it off. That's amazing. <laughs> Nice work. Yeah, sweet. <laughs> Woo! Oh, I like the nausea at the end. That's perfect. High five. I, I want to say that they have weapons that the, the effect is, it's got to be like a uh, psychological shame. Because I know there's weapons that make you vomit, and I know there's weapons that make you poop your pants. So, I mean, like, even if you survive that, you're not feeling good about going into battle after that. Mm. Good job. I think that's related to that same thing I'm talking about. That That's what it does. It like, eventually, people just, like, shit their pants, or... And then, and then, how do you tough after you poop your pants? I mean, it, it's a conundrum. If an enemy is always using a weapon against you that gets you to shit in your pants, but doesn't stop you in any other way, you can get pretty used to walking around with shit in your pants to, to complete your objective. I mean, human beings are like that. I mean, the military would get them to shit in their pants and run and, you know, stab dummies you know what I mean? you would you would resort to like metal gear body paint so you could just poop on the battlefield and keep moving yeah exactly you're not getting in a foxhole with me buddy that's something that they can get used to but when it's completely debilitating when it stops you from being able to move it basically robs you of your will to live you just know like, that if you get any closer to that you're just going to die you know so this weapon is now debilitating the entire gi joe force except for those hiding underneath a vehicle because apparently these waves cannot pass through uh, uh, vehicles. So we are left... So the tank crews inside the maulers should be a-okay. They right? should actually be perfectly all right, but mm. apparently they're not uh, shooting back at the Cobra Dragon. Damn. But we do have a couple of guys who can save the day, and there would be Alpine, Bazooka, and QK. And they have a very wild idea, because Bazooka remembers that Alpine is really good at yodeling. So, <laughs> they hook themselves up to a, a PA system, and they, all three of them start yodeling together. Yeah, they manage to hide under the vamp that has the, uh, the speakers on the top, you know, for blasting propaganda pieces and uh, whatever else G.I. Joe happened to do that day. Maybe they were singing songs like, The cobra that got away changed my life one rainy day. <laughs> <laughs> and even Alpine... Is like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> but he still does it anyway, and somehow their combined yodeling like, manages to destroy the Cobra Dragon. Like Banshee from the X-Men, man. Yeah. Yes, yes. So it destroys the, that as well as starts destabilizing the entire base. That's some yodeling. They really should have put that on Alpine's file card. Would have given that character a whole lot more redeeming qualities. Oh, I'm glad you brought it <laughs> Well, I mean, if they really wanted to be accurate, they should have put a shockwave in his position. Huh? He's a choir boy, isn't he? Ah, yes, but he was a few years off, wasn't he? Ah, okay, so uh, he hadn't been invented yet. Does that essentially end the action? Well, it really should have. It should. Because G.I. Joe oh. raided the shit out of the Cobra Temple, blasting everything in sight, but not managing to hit... It's the American not way. Not managing to hit Cobra's escape plane piloted by Tomax and Zaymots. They load up on board a Rattler, and Tomax and Zaymots profess to have a final plan that they're wanting to enact. Of course, Cobra Commander is all but livid that no one seems to tell him. 
I mean, it's not like he's Cobra Commander or anything. He really is such a middle child. <laughs> well, he's just pissed off all the time. I mean, when, when things when things go right, everyone tries to betray him. When things go wrong, he's the last person to know what the sort of plan B is. It was tricky, and I'm not sure why they did it. The whole power dynamic shift between the twins to Cobra Commander and back again, or vice versa. I just confused myself. It was done pretty smooth. I mean, as far as cartoon writing, because you can kind of see, like, Cobra Commander, like, you know, he's like, okay, I give in. And then he's like, this is a complete circus. Like, I gotta, I gotta take control, even if it goes down in flames. And once uh, things don't go the twins' way on Space Station Delta, when the Joes have crushed the Pyramid of Darkness, Tomax and Zaymot, like, cease to have any dialogue. And they just walk around the base kind of sheepishly. The Joes are attacking, and the Cobras need to open the waterfall at the Cobra Temple so that they can let their troops counterattack. <laughs> the two twins are operating the, the valves to open the, the, the sort of curtain of, of water, and they, they just look pathetic, actually. They and then like, they also man the Cobra Dragon as well. Yeah, they're just like uh, <laughs> the Appies from that point onwards. So off they race, back to Enterprise City. The location where it all began. But before we get there, the Joes are trying to find where the self-destruct sequence is. And it is Polly who saves the day by sitting on a control stick and uh, pushing it down. And revealing the location of the self-destruct sequence. And then all the cubes are destroyed in quite a spectacular fashion. Yeah, look, I mean, finding the self-destruct button clearly labeled and in red could only work in the cartoon world. I mean, I don't think they could have possibly done that in a live-action... Wait a minute! <laughs> they did! Oh, dear goodness. G.I. Joe Retaliation. Can anyone remember that film? <laughs> oh, we take this moment... Uh, uh, we take five minutes due to a technical <laughs> error. Well, G.I. Joe Berg reminisces of uh, G.I. Joe Retaliation, the movie. Where a similar situation, except this time in a briefcase... Roadblock needs to save the day. He wrestles the briefcase from the recently exploded Firefly and hits the red button, causing Cobra's doomsday weapon to self-destruct in space. I mean, who? Why? Still a better love story than Twilight. (laughs) (laughs) Why do they incorporate a self-destruct sequence? It's ridiculous. Yeah. That should happen, too. It's just just like a final little thing. Like, Like... I don't know, Ron Friedman was just sitting there like, oh, i got to wrap this up real quick in one episode. Here's the thing about people that have endless amounts of money, like Cobra, like the twins. They've already figured out the struggles of life that, that we struggle with. They're doing things on a level that's just pure ridiculousness. So, like, they're like, I'm going to destroy the world, but if somebody can trump me and find this self-destruct switch, we're all good. Like, <laughs> that's what level back. It's yeah, all it's fair right. in Love and War. Yeah. Yes, I will unleash the Pyramid of Darkness. And while G.I. Joe <laughs> tries to foil my plan, I'm going to snort as much coke as possible. <laughs> True story. I love being Cobra Commander. <laughs> in the comic book, Cobra Commander was asked how he drinks anything while he's got his battle helmet on. And he uh, produces a little straw. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> clearly. Did he brand the straw? That's the, that's the question. 
Was it called a, the the snake straw or the snake slurp? Or <laughs> snake dung. How many of Coke there? straw, as far as I'm concerned. It's the oh, nice. <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> the fairy dust pipe. That's really the genius of Cobra Commander. He's not involved with the military outfit for any other reason than he just brands stuff. They bring him like a toothpick, and he's like the Cobra pick, <laughs> and they're like brilliant. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Getting back to the plot. The twins fly their Rattler back to their twin towers in Enterprise City. Ooh, we learn that they are Enterprise Towers. They park it inside. Flint observes the Rattler flying into the building, something that had he noticed in the first episode, we might have had a swifter conclusion to this miniseries. But he's seen it now. The twins take a seat in their control room. Cobra Commander gets the kitty seat in the back, which is this telescoping throne that sort of vaults him about two meters into the air. And he's sitting behind the twins, you know, like, Mommy, Daddy, are we there yet? (laughs) Snake Eyes and Shipwreck make their way to the Enterprise Tower and find an elevator shaft popping open at the bottom but of course the entire tower starts coming to pieces because what is in fact in the place of these glittering skyscrapers is a indestructible spacecraft and a launch gantry which is insane what does this mean folks this means that cobra built up their spacecraft on a launch pad Literally a couple of miles away from G.I. Joe's launch base. They had their space programs being constructed a stone's throw away from one another. In fact, just across the river from one another. Brilliant. Outstanding. I mean, that's just Cobra one-upping G.I. Joe. Big time. G.I. Joe are lucky they're the good guys. If they weren't the good guys, they would have had their asses kicked a long time ago. They got a bigger parachute, but <laughs> we know Cobra's. No doubt. Shipwreck and Snake Eyes and their animal companions are at the bottom of this monolithic tower, and a lift comes down and opens up. Who's inside? Saturn! What the hell was she doing? That was very unexpected. Blindside, man. So after leaving Enterprise City and driving off into the sunset, leaving Shipwreck and Snake Eyes and their animal companions behind, she returns to Enterprise City. And infiltrates Enterprise Tower. Is that, is that how? That, that's kind of what it feels like. Yeah. That's what happened. Yeah. So she's on her way out of Enterprise Tower when she bumps into Shipwreck and Snake Eyes again. Hey guys. <laughs> Did you miss me? You come back for an autograph? No, we came back to kick Cobra Commander's ass. Oh, where is he? Oh, he's back up the tower. Well, let's go back up there. This isn't suspicious at all. <laughs> they pop out at the top floor, presumably inside the spacecraft and proceed to kick Cobra Commander and Tomax and Zaymot's asses. <laughs> Indeed. In true G.I. Joe fashion. The uh, Femme Vitale goes for the Commander, hopefully exacting revenge from uh, Cobra Commander's wicked framing of her father. <laughs> the details aren't important, I suppose. We just know that somehow her father was framed by Cobra Commander. So she's been waiting to exact bloody revenge. She does so by driving his helmet into the control consoles 
of the Cobra rocket. So hard that it gets magnetized to the control panel. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Shipwreck takes out one of the twins, which in turn takes out the other. And just to add insult to injury, the twin that's already manned down gets a gut kick from the Silent Master. Nice. Yeah, Snake Eyes kick them all the time. Before Shipwreck, Saturn, and Snake Eyes bug out on some very, very conveniently located trouble bubbles and accompanying opening hatchway. Yes, and why do they need to do that? They need to do that because this thing is taking off. And they know that uh, Duke is planning on, on destroying this thing before it gets into space, even though it's been established as an invincible rocket. You did establish that. Yeah. Let's not sweat the details, gents. <laughs> this is a cartoon, after all. So this show's almost wrapped up. Yes. We cut back to yeah. Space Station Delta, and uh, while the Joes are racing around trying to eliminate the invincible Cobra shuttle racing towards them, Zartan manages to break free of his shackles because no one bothered to pat him down for hidden laser gauntlets. True. <laughs> he zaps off his shackles and is then faced with a conundrum. He was betrayed by his own men, the Dreadnoughts, but they're so pathetic. And such, as Zartan puts it, second-rate stooges, that he decides to let them loose as well. Because if Cobra loses, he might need the help of the Dreadnoughts to uh, rebuild the organization and take over Cobra for himself. Interesting. I hope they pick up this plot thread in, in later episodes. <laughs> Agreed. Or I hope they pick up what exactly goes down. Because <laughs> while Zartan says to the Dreadnoughts, it's okay, guys. I might need second-rate stooges like you when I take over control of Cobra. And they are busy embracing his legs, kissing his feet, and falling about him like a bunch of complete sycophantic toadies. Zartan puts them in a garbage chute and sends them off into the cold, silent void of space. While well, he takes uh, an escape pod. <laughs> I find that a particularly cruel and calculating fate, because... You assume that this garbage chute is going to make it back to Earth safely, but why do you assume that? It's a garbage chute. You're just firing that off yeah. into space. Why would it be equipped with, like, parachutes and stuff so they can land the, sh the rubbish on the ground and then, what, put that in a garbage heap? So applying an yeah. adult mind to this situation, Zartan has condemned these guys to, to a rather cruel death. Mm. <laughs> Slowly running out of air. Even the air itself is so stinky and dirty. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's two ways that it can go. Slowly running out of the air part, and then, you know, paper, rock, scissors for who gets to eat who first as they drift into the void of space. Or it gets pulled by Earth's gravity, and they burn up in re-entry. So either way sucks. <laughs> Do they let that happen a lot, where characters are so pathetic that they're clinging to people's legs? Does that happen very often? Yeah, it's a cartoon. It does happen, okay. especially within Cobra. Okay. There's a lot of bootlickers in Cobra. They definitely do that. It's to show how bad it is to be a bad guy, children. Yep. Practically the very next scene is the Cobra hierarchy bickering on a subway train, all in disguise. The Baroness is rocking a very sexy nurse outfit. Mm. Cobra Commander is like an old biddy. I mean, he's like a bag lady, complete with a wig over his shiny domed helmets. I mean, it's hilarious. And they're just... It's a good scene. 
It's a good scene. It was your fault. No, your fault. Your fault. Your fault. I mean, the, the script writing kind of falls apart at that point. But... And Destro and Baroness are kind of still arguing about their relationship. Love is quarrels, man. That shit spills over into your personal life, your private life, your professional life. It's all there, man. It's crazy. And she's such a bitch. I mean, she wears that sexy That's outfit. She's just pissing him off. She's just doing it to get a, a rise out of him. Definitely, she definitely wants to give him a rise. <laughs> she's like where's your low altitude pyramid of darkness now (laughs) so yeah just before that uh duke destroys the invincible rocket and the joes win the day yay the end yeah polly wants to get a cracker from saturn (laughs) shipwreck gets a peck and uh polly wants in as well flint and lady J fly their sky strikers off into the sunset presumably to have Dinner at the mess hall. And dirty, dirty sex afterwards. Oh, all over the mess hall tables. I don't think Roadblock can be too pleased about the state of his kitchen after they're done with it. <laughs> yeah, Celavi, man. Right, somebody got body massage. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the last time, high and low. Tell me, Paul, what's your high of this episode? What's your low? Oddly enough, I really do love it when Snake Eyes and Shipwreck rock up. On the on the backs of cows, I think I think it's such a random thing to put into an episode. This is of course one of my my high of the episode. There's so much happening, but I really like that little scene. I think it's quite intelligent. And this is not really what happens, but that's how I defend it. And how I defended it in this episode is really how I choose to see it. So for me, that makes the scene. And I mean, that's the point of watching cartoons. You know, it's meant to inspire your imagination, or at least good cartoons are meant to do that. This show has so much in it. That it'd be worth mentioning. I do enjoy Destro and Baroness's argument as well. I know I'm sort of grabbing a second one here, but I do enjoy it because it's kind of a, dare I say, mature thing to happen. Even though uh, I agree with what Steve said in that female characters in this series are actually handled in a very chauvinistic manner. I do still enjoy that little argument. It does show that, you know, not everything is happy in this cartoon world, that there are actual problems, even though it's glanced over very quickly and then brought back to us at the end of the episode. A low point, Shay, I was reading on Facebook, one of our listeners wasn't very happy with our treatment of Alpine. To be fair, I'm not the biggest Alpine fan, but I do think that in the entire Joe animated series, Alpine has really dealt a bad hand in this miniseries. And the Alpine Bazooka quick kick trio thing with the yodeling and that, that just drives me crazy. But then again it's a it's a mainstay in this miniseries. I just don't like it. So that would be my low point. Uh everything else is pretty much on the surface. It's just kind of there. Kujo, if you were to defend Alpine, what would you have to say? You say he's got a rather neatly sculpted rope on his chest. Well, he does have those arm gauntlets, too, which on the figure, that that doesn't look too bad. I will say this, that, and this will launch me, it's going to launch me into a rant, guys. Do, do you want me to go there? Shoot, buddy. We've been waiting to hear that for some time now. Yes, it's been turning to cancer within me. As far as Alpine goes, I was thinking about this a lot when we started watching this, and that is, what is the biggest influence on your mind when you're a kid and you buy these figures? Because you guys didn't have the cartoons, at least frequently. You knew the figures. I suspect that file cards were the most informative thing about G.I. Joe for you. Totally. They were for me, because you collected them. Even if you didn't have the figure, you still wanted the file card. As far as Alpine goes, on his file card, he's given some respect. He kind of has that egghead appearance, but 
he, he's a man of action. So, like, I respect the figure. The writing of... Uh, Rob, will you bless me with that guy's name again? The writing of Ron Friedman. Nice. Thank you, brother. He had this little YouTube video that he kind of outlined his writing process about the G.I. Joe show. And it came across to me that he, he's one of the reasons. And I understand that he created the cartoon, etc. He's one of the reasons fandom dies a slow death as you get older. Because of they don't really care about the characters. Like, he, he, he came across in the video, he's kind of arrogant, which you have to be if you're in Hollywood. That's just how it is. But he was kind of like, you know, you create these situations, these people. But he didn't really follow the characters. No. So, I mean, the high point for me is I really liked how they gave the twins some humanity. They portrayed them as bad guys, but you start to understand that they're smarter than Cobra. And they care about each other. So it creates a little bit of confliction. And I think that as the figures came out, you didn't really need to be told what they were about. Because through this cartoon and through their file card, you were like, oh, these guys are in the boardroom. And they're like dropping elbows on people. So even though their outfits are kind of wild and their blasters were something sci-fi, I, I definitely liked their portrayal. The low point is just the disregard for... The characters. Bazooka is actually a strong character if you put him in situations that make sense for him. Um, Alpine, the same. I think that yodeling thing, I'm going to I'm gonna give it a flyer just because I don't think the writer knew w what to do with the character. Oh, they just thought yeah. mountains yodeling. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's the low point is definitely the attention to the, the G.I. Joe mythos and, and what the characters meant to people because of the file cards. Yes, sir. That's all. I, I certainly have more to say about that. It becomes clear after you kind of hear that interview that he didn't talk about the characters. He just talked generalities. Like, he's not like, oh, I really liked writing this character because I felt this about him. He was more like, we're going to put characters in outrageous situations and this and that. And you're just like, no, G.I. does more than that. I feel like he lost a lot of the nuance in trying to make it easy for himself to sort out an enormous roster of characters. He made them so extremely caricature that they stopped becoming real. And another thing that he very patently admits to, almost in the first few minutes of this interview that you brought our attention to, Kujo, is that he read through one or two of the file cards. He lists Snake Eyes and saying, uh, I read the, 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 the bio card that came on the, the, the cardboard that the, the figure came inside and... Uh, <laughs> oh dear, I'm, I'm <laughs> That's totally how it was. And, uh, like, and it says, uh, Snake Eyes likes to be alone, and uh, and likes his his favorite weapons are are nunchucks or numbskulls, <laughs> and not much else. And and that's not a character, okay? That's really neat stuff for a toy, but that's not a character. I take his point there. Sure, it's not necessarily notes on how to play his character, but there are the hints at very, very, very important character traits hidden in those file cards. Those file cards are elegantly, eloquently, and very economically written to convey huge swaths of very evocative information in a very, very short space of time, in very few words. And that was the true, Definitely. true merit of, of the penmanship behind those file cards. Exactly. If I'm to call up Bazooka's file card and this is where, like, you can tell that Ron Friedman had made up his mind that he was not going to bother with the file cards quite early on in the game. 
you know, he decided for himself that they were not a good jump on point for where to start sketching these characters. So he went off on his own tangent, which sadly has backfired on him because the file cards are immortal. They will always be our first port of call when discovering, when unearthing information about a G.I. Joe Cobra character. But Bazooka's file card, and this is probably the best example of this to those of you who don't already know, right at the bottom, we have a note, an additional note. Normally there were two main paragraph sections to a, a file card, but Bazooka has an additional third paragraph, which is just one sentence that says, Subject is a decisive, fast thinker with all the inst- instincts of a natural survivor. Now, that sentence could not be less true of Bazooka's cartoon appearance. Subject is a decisive, fast thinker with all the instincts of a natural survivor. He's causing avalanches. He's getting injured. He's falling about. He's being an absolute uh, liability to the G.I. Joe team in the cartoon. He's got a Tom Selleck mustache. I mean, you're not a fool when you're walking around with that. But, Rob, what's your, I mean, what's your thoughts on this? Get your hands dirty, man. I think what everyone said so far is quite true. He seems to have gone off on his own direction. Ron Friedman's just kind of, he's kind of owned it. He said, I didn't read the file cards. I decided to interpret these characters myself. Perhaps if he had actually read the file cards, we would have got a much more, I suppose, accurate representation of these characters, at least the way that we interpret the characters based on the file cards and the comics. And maybe the cartoons would be even more interesting than they are. To me, at least, I mean, having only recently, over the last year or so, discovered the cartoons, I find them in general exceptionally laughable and very much the same Mm. as any other 80s cartoons. Because also in that interview, he kind of mentions how most cartoons of the time, they kind of put forward the characters almost like stick figures, where there's nothing interesting to kind of like bind you to those characters or something. And he ends up basically doing that. Doing what he says everything, every other cartoon of the, of the time period is like. He creates the exact same thing. He falls into the same traps of purporting to create three-dimensional characters, but in essence just creating Machiavellian villains and, and heroic, completely unfappable heroes. Yes. Untarnishable you... good guys and, and extremely childish adolescent bad guys. He even goes on to say mm. that that he, he penned the Cobras to extol values that, that a, a, at, at worst a greedy child would have and at, at best a sort of a scheming adolescent would have. And that fails to understand, you know, the human condition. Like, people aren't polarized, like, diabolically evil or heroically good. We're all kind of different shades. And to think that his work holds up 30 years later... He's smoking some good shit because it doesn't, man. You can't treat these cartoons as as work that will hold up to an adult audience now. And he is completely unmodest about this. A little bit of humility would go a long way for this guy, and he just doesn't seem to have a shred of it. And I know you make apologies from Cujo saying, that's L.A., that's the effect of Hollywood. I take that. He's a dick. But if you look on the other side yeah. of the fence... His opposite number in the comic book world of G.I. Joe, Larry Harmer, could not be a more humble, more modest creator of his of his craft. And it it stands Thomas, it stands up Thomas, today. Harmer's seen seen the shit. And yeah. He doesn't have much ego. I mean the the problem with this guy is it just uh yeah, I, I don't wanna continue. <laughs> <laughs> they they called him in 
to do this cartoon series because they wanted someone who deals with with real drama and real shows with real people. They didn't want to pitch a cartoon at where cartoons were typically pitched, and that's like you know the masses of kids uh, with no real intellectual through line. Dear listeners, if you are a fan of the cartoon, which we clearly are not, and we have offended you on some on some level, and you want to sing the praises of Ron Friedman and praise his work and we're kind of deriding a very cherished figure in your life, allow me to play a little audio drop from the man himself, which if you are a lover of G.I. Joe and you are in fact a collector of this toy line, will rattle you ever so slightly or perhaps rattle you greatly. (laughs) Boom. Most recently, I was asked to be a faculty fellow at USC and give a speech at one of the dorms. Well, about 45 people showed up, one of whom was a veteran, recent veteran, who had doing, been doing flybys over Iraq. And when he heard G.I. Joe, he said, are you going to be here for a while? I said, well, yeah, I have to do my speech. He said, OK, I'll be down. And he brought down a ton of G.I. Joe memorabilia. I was touched. I also think he should be in restraint in a home. But I'm flattered, and I get a great kick out of it. Uh, he, he said, like, you know, come up to my room and, and, and sign some of my stuff. He had a room full of G.I. Joe toys and stuff. And I, and I thought to myself, well, this guy should be committed. But uh, I thought it was very flattering. You know, if you're if you're an adult person and you've got a room that looks like that, I mean, you 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 should be uh, in restraints. <laughs> fuck you, fuck you, buddy. Yeah, fuck you, Ron Friedman. He's obviously arrogant, as many people are. I'm not trying to defend this guy's body of work, but I will say this: that let me evoke uh, some Marvel DC chatter real quick. People argue continuity versus artistic expression. You know, the people that do the DC arcs. They take ownership. Usually their name is out front or something, or you have Christopher Nolan's Batman, something like that. You get an interpretation of a character. But in cartoon form in childhood, you're looking more for continuity early on. Like, does this character continue to make sense for me? So what he did was he made a very memorable cartoon. It was complete foolishness, but he made people remember Snake Eyes Breakdancing, even though that's a character that likes to be alone and would likely be more reserved and not embrace the spotlight. You know, he, he completely contradicts himself. So, like, is it memorable? Yes. Is it thematically a clown job? Also true. <laughs> what, what I think Kudra is saying is, is true. I mean, you, you get different interpretations of characters. And the interesting thing is that we are sitting here 30 years later actually talking about these characters. Yes, we may be kind of ripping into it, but we're still kind of taking our time to talk about it. It's the Trump-Kardashian effect, and I'm never going to say those two names again. So, <laughs> and it's it's just so fascinating and different that you you get some almost like a perverse enjoyment out of kind of watching it, I think. And even though like a lot of it angers me, I I still find a way of enjoying these years of cartoons uh, as I slowly but surely now make my way through them. I'm gonna light Paul's fuse. <laughs> Okay, I think out of the, the trio of G.I. Joe book, I think it's fair to say that as far as the cartoon goes, I'm the bigger fan. I really do love this cartoon, and I will continue to be a fan of it. I will state, and I will say it, I think Ron Friedman is a dick. And I also don't think Rod Friedman 
himself is responsible for the cartoon series. You know, he's credited, he's billed as the writer, but the thing is what a lot of people don't uh, understand, in comic books, you have a uh, an editor, and then you have your panel of writers, and then you have your artists, inkers, colorists, and then etc., okay? And what often happens is you get into these bullpens, or you get into these kind of think tank sessions, where all the writers get together with the editors, and they kind of discuss where the stories are going to go, etc., etc. I know Marvel uh, used to do this back in the 80s, allegedly. Now, Larry Harmer is a single guy that's looking after a property. So he was probably involved with a lot of meetings and things with Hasbro and with his creative team. And that's how we got G.I. Joe the comic book. Because we had one captain, we had Larry Harmer, the then editor whose name I can't think of right now. I think it might have been Dan Dio or whatever back in the day. I can't remember. So you got that team. For all intents and purposes, they're a military team. Okay, they, They're a squad. They're focused. They're methodical. They're getting a great story out. They're getting great art out month after month. The thing is with the cartoon is Ron Friedman's name is there, right there on the on the cartoon. And everybody's like, oh my God, Ron Friedman's either A, he's amazing, or B, he's a douche. The thing is, they don't consider that underneath Ron Friedman are a lot of people actually writing this stuff. Because Ron Friedman himself does not write all of this stuff. He can't. It's just there's too many things to, to take care of. There's too many plates to spin. I swear, if he isn't responsible for Shipwreck's dialogue then I have no redemption for the guy whatsoever. It's like, the best bit of penmanship is, yeah, I wonder what they serve in there. A broken leg of lamb? <laughs> From having read other artists' books, Bruce Tim was involved with G.I. Joe very, very briefly, and he pulled out because he said Ron Friedman's a dick, for example. That was something that he sort of mentioned in passing. I know Larry Harmer, for example, is not a big fan of Ron Friedman either. I mean, he said that on Facebook the one time, without being very direct, he just linked to a Ron Friedman interview and he was like, yeah, this guy. <laughs> and this is the thing. I do not like Pyramid of Darkness. I think in the entire Sunbow run of the G.I. Joe animated series, Pyramid of Darkness is exactly that. It's a Pyramid of Darkness. It's a very dark, horrible spot for me. It's the third disc in the box set and I always skip it. I go G.I. Joe, the miniseries, Revenge of Cobra... And then I go skip Pyramid of Darkness and I go straight into the following episodes every time because I don't like Pyramid of Darkness. I find it very irritating to watch. And the biggest faults that, that I feel come into Pyramid of Darkness, it's too much. There's too much happening. There's too many new characters. The, the plot itself starts off as a good idea, but it's stretched over five episodes. It shouldn't be. It should have been one of maybe two two bigger plots. It's a serious, like, heavy-handed ploy to force the new god down down kids' throats. It's like, yeah, kids, buy Tomax and Zaymot uh, and Tomax because they're the new bad guys. Destro is also really cool. Cobra Commander's an idiot. You can't get him anymore now anyway. Or, you know, and, oh yeah, buy Alpine and Bazooka because we've heard from the marketing, from the PR team in Hasbro that they're scared that these are not going to sell that well. So let's push them. Let's shove them down your throat. It's all these characters and it's just, it's like, ah. Because beforehand, you had characters written with a lot of pathos. You know, they had something to them. They were, they were more there. Here, you've got the best character in this miniseries is Shipwreck. Because he's got the most character. And it's too much of a normal, boring thing. It's not like too much of something cool. It's repetitive and it's just yuck. I think that this was a defining moment in Samba. I think they kind of went, okay, Ron Friedman needs help. <laughs> Someone needs to help him write these characters because he's actually not helping the brand. Although Pyramid of Darkness did well, I don't think it did that well. I think Hasbro kind of took a backseat there and went, hmm, how are we going to fix this? 
Because we don't hear about Pyramid that often. We hear about all the other two miniseries quite often in Joe Law. A lot of people bring up the those those episodes when they discuss it. Pyramid of Darkness is is not always that frequently mentioned. It's not even that lauded. I mean, if you think about Fatal Fluffies, for crying out loud, <laughs> there's nothing new introduced in the series. So a lot of people don't have these great memories, or at least for me, I don't have these great memories. I'm, it's not fair of me to speak for everybody else, but I just find that the people don't really talk about it that much. That is my sort of post-mortem on Pyramid of Darkness, if you guys are still there. Should we, should we throw down our, our five stars? Well, well, let, let's first hear what is Stevens. I am low. I'll keep it brief. Yeah. My low is definitely the fact that this episode was a tying up of a great many things in a very short space of time. Knotting Cobra's coils, there were a lot of coils to knot, and it just left the, the episode feeling totally crammed. Like, we had episodes early on in the miniseries that felt like they were filler episodes because there just weren't enough ground-breaking events happening in them. Uh, I don't even need to get back into it. We gave quite a comprehensive summary of this episode, but it was just like, whoa, we're going to not unveil one Cobra backup plan, but two. We're not only going to have a showdown at the Cobra Temple, but also at Enterprise Towers. So it was a doubling up where they really could have spread it a bit better through throughout the miniseries, I thought. Uh, but of course, they wanted to make you know G.I. Joe go from zero back to hero all in the space of 23 minutes. So can't really fight that. But it was definitely a low for me. The high point, Zartan, of course, of course, it's me, guys. You got fuck all to do in the rest of this miniseries except the taking over of, of Space Station Delta. And his real shining moment is forgiving his flock that have been led astray. The poor Dreadnoughts. I'll, I'll, I'll take you back into the fold. Come with me. Come, come. Shh, shh. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Just go, go into the airlock. Close the door. Shh. Goodbye, fuckwits. <laughs> into the garbage and into a screaming cold void of space where no one can hear you die wow that that's incredible that's just beautiful and Zartan's the man <laughs> I, don't, I don't think my high point is even near that awesome there's a moment where Alpine, Bazooka and Quicker they crash their helicopter into the Joe base and then they all get out and like, oh, here introductions. And then they're like, oh, what's been happening with you? And then Quick Kick does this incredible <laughs> rundown of everything that they've done. This quick oh, summary. And he's like firing it off, like fast, 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 fast. And then Shipwreck's like, wait a minute. You do just say you know where the Cobra Temple is? Uh, just back up, back up. And Quick Kick then, obviously they must have done this in post, but he like rewinds what he said. No, he's do the voice actor's doing it live. They're not rewinding, playing his voice backwards. He's actually going... Oh, it's that's kind of brilliant. aping what a spoken line sounds like and when then you play he says, And he says it normally. And then that's the moment where they know where the base is, and they're like, yes, let's go get them. That was my high point. I just enjoyed that little moment. And now you've made it even better. <laughs> if you want to feel better about the cartoon, look up the interviews with the voice actors. The voice actors, Michael Bell, Morgan Lofting, and the lot, they, in my opinion, make this not necessarily Pyramid of Darkness, but G.I. Joe, 
the Sunbow experience, they make it something special. Those guys have so much fun and they really do ad lib a lot. They really do add a lot to these characters and they really think about these characters. If you listen to the interviews, even Michael Bell, somebody who, who always jokingly uh, rips off some, uh, a lot of his roles, even said, you know, he did try to think about Duke. He had to create, create a character for Duke and he had to create a character for some of these guys and he had a lot of fun doing the show. You know, that says something when your voice actors are more enthusiastic about the project than your writer. Some of the directors are also interviewed, and they're also a lot of fun. I had to jump on because Rob made such a cool uh, point there with the rewinding quick kick that I had to add oh, that. Great to bring attention to that. And yeah, my low point with, with Mirror Steves in, in that this conclusion to the series is just exceptionally disappointing. It's sad. And I think that brings us to our our ratings. And I think I'll go first. My my rating for this one is is one, fatal fluffy. I I've gone full circle. I've come back to one again. I gave one in the first episode and giving it at the end. The series had an awful start. Had an even worse ending. Like part. Well, the finale blew the whistle, and then your fl- absolutely fatal it completely blew the whistle in 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 a bad way. It had such a nice, like the last, the previous episode, I really enjoyed it. It was fun. It seemed like they might be going somewhere interesting, but no, it did not go anywhere interesting at all. So I'm giving it a one. There. I said it. But Steven, what's, what's your rating? My highest rated episode was the first one because I'm a big fan of the more vehicular action. In this episode, there was so much crammed into it that there was no real opportunity for any clear action of any kind. There were a few fisticuffs with Cobra Commander and the twins. There was uh, the Joes charging into the Cobra Temple. You know, if there aren't memorable character moments, then there's nothing for me to watch. So the only true memorable character moment that happened in this episode was Zartan for me and him reaccepting the Dreadnoughts only to then dust them again, which is beautiful. I'm going to take that and convert it into a star. And I realize last episode I gave stars based on the number of MacGuffins that I perceived in the episode. So the Starfly's got a, a half star, the Robotopus got a half star, Saturn's Mask Crusader wagon got a half star, and Tomax's Cobra symbol got a half star. But I neglected to remember that Lady J pulls out a laser ring. Which zaps the Robotopus. So I'm going to take Robotopus. that half star that I should have awarded to the previous episode and transfer it onto this one because it clearly needs some help from me. And, <laughs> uh, and I'm going to combine that half star with another half star that I'm going to take for, uh, Lady J and Flint's repartee, which finally feels less forced in this episode and giving it a total of two fatal fluffy whistles out of five. Hmm. Go for it, Cooch. Alrighty. I do agree that a finale should focus its action, and it continued to have various climaxes, if you will. But it would have been nice to kind of show uh, everything end at the Cobra Temple, since that was like the stronghold for the whole time. Uh, unfortunately, I watched the Ron Friedman interview before I watched the finale. It left a sour taste in my mouth, as, as, it, as it should. So uh, I'll, I'll give it a half star, just because at the, at the core... I'm a fan. I do enjoy intriguing writing, but G.I. Joe is, was such a, and is such a, uh, something that's so entrenched in my brain. Like, 
like I said, the file cards, I can remember lines from file cards. I can remember the reason why we're still talking about G.I. Joe, in my opinion, is because of the card art and the file cards. Because no other toy was that intense with the artwork and with the information that it laid out to kids. I mean, it talked about real warfare and, and combat and people being vicious to each other. You just didn't get that from Star Wars figures or, or really anybody else. So half whistle, barely a whistle, <laughs> barely breathing on a whistle. Half, half star. Well, it's a silent whistle, so it doesn't take much <laughs> to, to deflate those fatal fluffies into little teddy bears. My stars went into remission. became flaccid. So. Yeah. Much like Destro's uh, 10. You know. <laughs> <laughs> He's pyramid I'm going to give it two Yodeling Joes. I'm only giving it the two Yodeling Joes because the two moments that I really liked, I liked enough to award a star for that. Uh, that whole quick kick thing is actually very cool. And the, the whole Zartan moment is a very cool moment. And I think that they deserve a star as well. I mean... Just, you know, combined. So it gets two yodeling Joes from Paul. Very interesting. So this actually gives this episode the lowest rating we've given in this entire miniseries of 1.375. Right, please And so. to just do a rundown, part one we gave on average uh, 2.125. Part two received 1.875. Part three received 2.5. Nice round number there, almost. And part four received our highest rating at 3.375, with part five coming in at the lowest of 1.375, giving this miniseries an overall average rating of 2.25 stars. And to give this a bit of a perspective, the average star rating we gave to episodes of Revenge of Cobra, which is the previous miniseries, which we discussed last year, the average rating was 3.26 Mm-hmm. It's it's crazy. I mean, on average, this received uh, yeah one star less. So unfortunately, uh, Permanent of Darkness really dropped the ball for the GI Joe cartoon, setting a rather unfortunate precedent for the full time series that was uh, Hot on its heels. Yeah, they really had to sort of you know pull themselves up, up. the game. Yeah, up the game. I'm pleased to note that there are standout episodes in the cartoon. It's not all bad. We're not going to bash the rest of Sunbow's efforts. No, absolutely. But I certainly won't. Thankfully, they expanded their writing pool, so it wasn't just Mr. Friedman producing absolutely every cartoon and using his characteristic swagger uh, and <laughs> braggadocio. <laughs> braggadocio. <laughs> uh, oh, you have not been able to stop saying that word since we watched the interview. I love that word. In the interview, Ron Friedman uses that word to describe the G.I. Joes. They've got a lot of braggadocio, which is perfect summing up of this man's ego. I mean, the very fact that he uses such a highfalutin, strange word, which I believe has its origins in Shakespeare, but I really couldn't be asked to look it up. Well, sir, congratulations. You've shown us what it means to have braggadocio. (laughs) (laughs) He did. He surely I'm looking forward to when we do cover some of those future shining examples of the uh, Sunbow uh, cartoon in in later episodes of G.I. Joburg. There are some great ones. Uh, I'm going to name drop one that I really love. There's no place like Springfield. I really love that uh, portion of the the G.I. Joe series. And Memories of Mara is another one. If you guys want to 
look those up. Do so. They're interesting to watch. Personally, Definitely be cool to watch. I'm going to yeah? rinse this show off my mind by re-watching G.I. Joe Resolute. G.I. Yeah. Joe Resolute is the topic is awesome. for another podcast. Excellent. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Gents, it's been fun regardless of the content. I've really enjoyed re-watching the stuff because I've known that I would be able to meet with the minds of esteemed colleagues like you fine folk. Thanks for humoring me. Thank you all for humoring one another. Uh, G.I. Joeberg, we love G.I. Joe of all shapes and sizes and cartoon writers because it gives us fun things to hate on. <laughs> and <laughs> Paradoxically. love. And love. And love. Yes, yeah, so uh, <laughs> not, join us not, uh, as we continue to do the anniversaries of every single episode from this uh, cartoon series and we hit them <clears> daily <throat> for the next couple of months, guys. Join <laughs> us every day, wherever. I can also just uh, throw a shout out uh, to our followers on Facebook and Twitter and to our followers on YouTube. You guys have been great. Uh, I've been checking up some of the comments. I haven't really been involved in some of the Facebook discussions. I think Steve has been uh, taking the helm on those, especially over the course of this round of episodes. You guys are great. We love you. A lot of you are just really awesome people. Well, actually, all of you are just really awesome mm, people. I love you. Uh, I really, really Except like that one guy, but you know who you are. <laughs> yeah. Leave yeah, us man. alone. What's up with that guy? I'm going to give a shout-out to Jim Godfrey, fan from the United Kingdom. Uh, certainly also skeptical of, of Ron Friedman's work on G.I. Joe, <laughs> who turned me on to the fact that there's a, a podcast called freemantv.com, which also addresses Ron's uh, work on G.I. Joe, basically making him out to sound like some kind of CIA spook, that it was all part of some propaganda, jingoist, psychological warfare campaign, which I'm sure there, that case could there be is made. some truth to that. Thanks for getting in touch with us and shooting us the link, Mr. Godfrey. I hope you're doing well. And gents, I think that's all I've got. So this is episode 59 of G.I. Joburg, September 20th, 2015. As of recording, might only pop up a little bit later because this one's going to be a monster to edit. <laughs> That's your My name's Stephen. And I'm Robert. I'm Paul. Fuck, I hate that song. <laughs> In the words of Shipwreck, try and play it casual. Uh, never mind, just enjoy the ride. That's what Kujo's got. Good night, G.I. Joes, and Cobras, and Dreadnoughts. Assuming you're still alive and not frozen. And Python Patrol. And, and thank you to you guys. Aww. For allowing me to join this conversation. I know you're going to edit this out. Please do. <laughs> Those are the famous <laughs> lost words, Kujo, because that stuff in Derby always stays in. But listen, it's been real. Good night, good night. And if I read, and I did, the back of the cardboard in which the action figure was stored, it said, Snake Eyes, he likes to be alone. And favorite weapons are a numchuck and a numskull, or whatever the hell it was.